0: It's Monday, which means you know what time it is. It's time to fight outrage, build nuance. Last week, we had Andrew Yang on, on the hopeful majority. We had a fascinating conversation for an hour and it went everywhere. Trump, Biden, GOP, check that last week's episode out. Today, the episodes are back to normal. I'm gonna be reacting to an amazing interview. And today's guest is gonna be Will Roosh, who's been teaching high school civics for 18 years. This is gonna be his 18 year anniversary Uh, I think he started last week, actually. And we're going to answer one specific question. What is the one thing missing in education today? I think you can probably guess from his title. There's a fascinating conversation. Remember, every week, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. And we're going to be doing a lot of coverage as the year goes on about the debates, about the primaries, about the elections. So stay tuned because we've got a hopeful majority of build. see you on the other side. All right. Well, there's a cosmic irony to this episode about what we should be teaching in schools. So and I'm about to get to that irony, but let me tell you what sparked this thinking. So you'll notice my conversation with Will is actually pre recorded. I was in Fort Bragg, California, which is this tiny town on the coast up in Northern California, about three hours north of San Francisco. Took the very curvy US 1 to get there. And The stay actually directly coincided with the Republican presidential debate. Yes, the GOP presidential debate where one person was missing. We all know who that person is. And I was just sitting there, right, on my porch. Sun was setting. Thank God at least I had a good view, maybe a glass of wine to get me through it. I was looking through and we're live tweeting the entire debate. I was like, man, I wonder how many people my age either care about this at all. And not just the GOP debate, I mean, just the presidential election process or democracy and if not care, how many of them even care to understand what's going on? And I don't mean that in a weird, condescending way. Like, I was genuinely curious. I mean, I am 24 years old. Five, six years ago, I wasn't following politics at all. And that's the irony of of what I'm doing today. And the question that I'm specifically asking, the fact that I'm going to be talking to one of our country's foremost high school civics teachers who's been teaching civics for 18 years down in Los Angeles, California. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking, I was like, 5 to 6 years ago, I mean you know my story, I was a pre-med student. I was interested in biology and frankly, I don't even know if I was interested in biology, but I was trying to both make, you know, my family proud. I was trying to make the the sacrifice of my parents proud and the notion of doing politics or econ or anything like that was way out there. And I was like, you know, there's this crazy problem and Andrew Yang and I talked about it in episode 12 where we talked about how he would think about fixing the problems of today and We came to this general conclusion through that conversation. Again, it's a hopeful majority. There are no set conclusions. We're always investigating, being open-minded. The conclusion we came to was it feels like the biggest threat to democracy today in our country is not necessarily blatant authoritarianism, but gradual apathy that, in Andrew's words, we might slump into authoritarianism. And this question of apathy has really been on my mind. You know, you think about voting rates today. They seem to be incredibly high, but... I don't think they're actually high because people are really excited about the system or understand democracy, or understand how our country works. I think they're really high because people are running away from something, as Vivek Ramaswamy would say. And the question becomes: if our generation is to is to think about taking the mantle, we can't have you know fifty to sixty percent of our generation not care at all about the country or democracy. You know, it's like asking somebody to invest into a stock when they don't know anything about the stock. And I think fundamentally the prerequisite to actually getting people to care about our country, getting people to care about our democracy, to put something into it, to help young people actually engage in productive ways, I think we have to start thinking about actually educating folks about our country, about our democracy, in basic civics. And this is where I want to take this episode. I was thinking about this from the ages of of five when I came back from India to, and I was born in New Jersey, but I sort of lived in India for a couple of years. My grandparents back on and off while my parents were, were studying for their jobs out in the US and came back. We moved around every two years, you know, went to, lived in New Jersey, moved around there a bunch, lived in Staten Island. Yep. Staten Island dump. Sorry, I said it. Um, Went back to New Jersey, then went up to Boston. And then finally graduated high school, went up to California um in San Francisco for school. Throughout that period, I was just thinking, I was like, who taught me about the three branches of government and the civics literacy that so desperately seems to be missing in our society? Who taught me about, you know, the Supreme Court? What happens when the Supreme Court rules on Roe v. Wade? Is it that actually abortions are all illegal or is it the back to the States? You know, all those complex questions that actually affect our daily lives. And I was thinking about that. So like, I don't think I ever actually received a formal civics education. It's like, Imagine you're raised in a family. Nobody actually tells you your family history. And then they're like, oh, by the way, when our parents move on, you're going to have to take over for the family. I'm like, what? You want me to? Of course, I'm going to respond with either I don't give a shit or okay. And like kind of just be apathetic towards it and not really care. Because why would I care about something that I'm inheriting when I don't know anything about it? And maybe I did take an AP U.S. history class in 11th grade. I loved my junior year teacher. But beyond that, and even in that class, it was very analytical. Like we learned about the history of the United States, but not just basic like how do you create change? What does it mean to petition? Uh, how What is the electoral college? Is it democratic? Is it not democratic? What, what does it mean? What was the original intention of the Constitution? Was it set up for the government to be an overreaching entity? Was it set up to protect our inalienable rights? What does inalienable even mean? And that's what got me thinking about this conversation. I think that we live at this moment where you do polling. The Harvard Institute of Politics did a poll, I think it was last year, that said that 38% of young people are down on democracy or don't think that their vote counts. Well, of course, they don't think their vote counts when they don't know how the goddamn system works. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, I'm going to vote and participate in something I don't understand. And so I found through our amazing marketing director, Jessica Carpenter for Bridge USA, she found this amazing teacher named Will Roosh online. And Will has this message online. He's on Instagram. You can check him out. And he talks a lot about civics and he talks a lot about how we should be engaging. He talks about the culture wars. And he actually had me on his podcast. And I was like, Will, this is such a fantastic conversation. I want to have you back on in the cosmic irony of this episode. The cosmic irony of this entire conversation is I was such an idiot in school. (laughs) My academics were not my strong suit. I barely got into college. I barely got out, you know, and and the fact that I'm talking now to a civics teacher about answering the question that we both think desperately needs to answer. What's the one missing thing that we need to be teaching our education system? think it's civics because that's how we get people out of that apathetic authoritarian slump. I thought there's no one better to actually talk to than Will Rouge. And this isn't just a liberal or conservative. As you know, this is about education. Now, here's the one big problem. Who determines what the civics curriculum is? You're seeing the school boards. You're seeing Florida. You're seeing what's going on with DeSantis. You're seeing what's going on on the liberal side with with, with trans ideology in schools. And people don't know where to take this. Will and I have a very simple take on this. And I think there's something very important that can be done in our society right now. There's a difference between ideological assessments of what our democracy ought to look like to answer those basic questions and an objective understanding of what we mean by the United States. That's what this topic is about, civics. I don't mean whether or not you should be teaching gender ideology in schools. What I'm talking about is we should probably teach our students what the branches of government are. I mean, I'm going very simple. You're like, Manu, what, how, this is obfuscating all the culture words. I want to hear what the school boards have to say. I want to hear what's going on in DeSantis. Should we be teaching AP African-American history? No, this is may, way more basic than that, folks. This is literally, I'm talking, You uh, citizens, like my parents immigrate to the country. When they become citizens, they have to answer a basic citizenship test. Basic citizenship test, like, When was the Constitution written? What is the Declaration of Independence? What's the difference between 1776 and the Articles of Confederation? Basic questions. We don't have the answers to those questions. People are becoming citizens, don't understand what's going on. That's what I'm talking about. So we can have that conversation. And the hopeful majority is about laying the foundation for the future of our country to thrive, for us to recognize that for a population to be educated, as Thomas Jefferson said, he wanted to be remembered for education. Education is the fundamental guardrail against tyranny against authoritarianism against a fight on our liberty because if a population is educated and understands how we move forward and then we buy into the system and how do you get people to get really excited about our politics to get really excited about our democracy to understand that while they're going to stem that democracy still matters well it's to learn about the damn democracy and that's what this episode is going to be on let's see will roosh excited for this conversation see you there all right will welcome to the hopeful majority sir
1: yeah thank you for having me. It's good to see you.
0: Do you already feel more hopeful? Uh, we'll <laughs> see <laughs> the story's uh, still out. that's that's an honest answer so for for the audience that doesn't know um you and I uh recorded a pod uh conversation on your podcast earlier uh that'll that'll probably release around this time and the way that I learned about your background your work was actually through our mutual friend Jess carpenter who runs Bridge USC's marketing she found your profile and, and found all the influencing that you're doing online and in the world, just for the people and for the folks, could you give a little bit of your background and, and just like, what, what brought you where you are today? What do you actually do? Um, and, and what, what sort of brings you to the, to the stuff that you're up to these days?
1: Yeah. Um, so tomorrow actually I start my. the first day of my 18th year in the classroom as a high school social studies teacher. Um, I always kind of just resonated more with the older kids. And in most of the states, I I grew up in Pennsylvania. Now I teach in California. The the social studies that's required for the seniors is government economics. So I was like, all right, so I'm going to teach government. So I've been teaching government in a high school classroom for going on, this is my 18th year. A couple of years ago, probably like 2015 or so, when the... um, that kind of culture war started to ramp up with uh, stuff happening in, at Yale with Nick Christakis and uh, Evergreen College with uh, Brett Weinstein and stuff like that, uh, Jordan Peterson. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This kind of like culture war issue seems like it's going to be coming to the, the K-12 area as well. So I started talking about it pretty openly just in my classroom and just like addressing these issues. And then my wife, who does a lot of social media marketing stuff, was like, you should put your classroom online. Started uh, an Instagram page. I was like, that's odd. Uh, talking to my phone. I felt weird talking to my phone. But as soon as I framed it as it's an extension of my classroom, then I was like, okay, let's go. And then I started a, an Instagram and I started a, a podcast on viewpoint diversity. And it's just kind of grown from there.
0: So what what specifically about those events with Nick Christakis, with uh, Brett Weinstein, um, all of those folks, what, like, what really got you going with regards to that? Why specifically did you feel like you wanted to do something around that?
1: it it seemed like an obvious um, uh, disregard for the fundamental ideas of America. You know, when I I wasn't like a social studies buff, I'm not like a history buff, but when you teach it, you start learning about it. And when you teach the constitution for, you know, 15 years straight, you start to really understand the values of it, the values of freedom of speech and stuff like that. And then when I've seen these elite colleges, completely disregarding the importance of freedom of speech. And then, you know, I studied history and the importance of the ACLU and the civil rights movement and freedom of speech and everything like that seemed just obviously against those things. So I was like, all right, well then I got to speak up and, I looked left, looked right, and very few, if any, high school teachers, K through twelve teachers, were talking about it, were addressing it. They were all on the side of like, "This is important. This is good. This is you know good to shut down hate speech and stuff like that." Without any kind of like acknowledgement of the p- potential dangers of it. So again, I looked left, looked right. No one was doing it. So I was like, "I guess I'll do it."
0: But that's that's not easy to do. Like when you and I were talking, uh, the question that I kept wanting to ask you was your life probably would be much more simpler not being an influencer on Instagram and extending your classroom online and probably taking all the incoming flack. It probably would have just been easy to go along or just not say anything. What about the culture war issue regarding my like hate speech and, and around these cancellations really got to you or gave you sort of the, the moral impulse say, you know what, I'm going to actually take the risk and, and go out there.
1: Yeah. So it is really, I have some friends that are like tough guys, like, you know, green berets, Navy SEAL types. And, and when they see me saying stuff, like, they're like, wow, you're really brave. I'm like, well, brave. <laughs> hold on. Hold yeah, on. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There's, there's levels to this. What it is, is, um, this is actually an interesting like metaphor is, um, I don't get, uh, poison ivy. My dad doesn't get it. My sister doesn't get it. So when we were kids, you don't and get the poison football, ivy? I don't get poison ivy. Like yeah. I can rub it on my skin. I don't get any rash. Okay. It's odd. So when we were kids, and the football would roll into the poison ivy, they'd be like, "All right, Roush, go get it," and I just go in and get it, and I was kind of immune to it. So when I noticed the stuff happening in in the in the K through twelve realm, uh, what what it is is I have a wife who's an entrepreneur; she makes more money than than I do. So um, financially, we're secure. Uh, and then I ended up teaching, starting in 2014. I ended up teaching at a very unique private school, modern Orthodox Jewish private school, actually, that uh, really embraces these these ideas of freedom of speech and um, and leave no stone unturned when it comes to education. So my job is secure. So because of that. I'm kind of immune to the cancellation. I get letters sent to my school sometimes, uh, but my school supports me. The, the community supports me. The students like me. The parents like me. The administration likes me. So they let me do my thing, at least for now. They let me do my thing. And um, and I think that's that's a big reason. is like the, the barriers that were in front of me were less than a lot of other high school teachers that I think feel the same way.
0: So what I'm really curious about is is trying to understand what it's like to teach civics at this moment. But before we go there, what gives you sort of the, would you say when you, when you're in the community, when you're in the classroom, people are, people are supporting you and saying, Hey, get out there, do this, or that we will back you. Um, it does feel like we're in this weird moment where these values seem to be more conservative. I mean, you and I talked about how free speech and, you know, saying that hate speech is not free speech. It seems to be more of the liberal thing to say today. Like, do you, do you think that these values are, are politicized right now? Do you feel a sense that when you walk into the classroom that students might feel like you're more of a conservative or, or you might be on this side or that side? Like, how, how have you navigated this moment? And and how do you feel like you need to stand up for these values that are just values and they're not necessarily political?
1: Yeah, I do get that. I get students telling me like, oh, so you're like a really right wing. You're a Republican. I'm like, I've actually never voted Republican, nothing against Republicans. So I've never voted Republican. I started, I voted actually um, Republican in a local elections because I'm in mm-hmm. Los Angeles and I like balance. If I was yeah. in Alabama, I'd, I'm sure I'd vote Democrat. Um, but I get that for the same, for that reason, like these ideas seem to be aligned with conservatism and I don't think they are. The way that I address it is through curiosity. I just ask a lot of questions. Like Mm -hmm. I am strongly against the war on drugs. Is that conservative? You know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I I have a bunch of stances that are kind of in the middle. Um, So I just ask a lot of questions. You know, what makes you think that? Um, How do you define hate speech? If you say you hate Donald Trump, is that hate speech? Like, like, like how do you, so i start asking questions and then in that process, my students or parents or whoever it is, they have to contend with those questions. And what I found is they largely haven't given it a lot of thought.
0: How do you respond to the question that you as like a, uh, a straight white person has the privilege to, you know, engage in free speech and discourse while those that are, are specifically on the, on the edge of an issue, or actually, are at stake with a certain issue, don't have the capacity. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? I get that a
1: lot. Yeah, because I'm, I'm like I'm like yeah. every I'm like the intersectionality matrix. I'm like every oppressor. <laughs> Jack,
0: really, you, yeah, are chief, you are you are the CEO. You are chief oppressing
1: officer. I really like have those things because I'm like, I'm white. My, my 23 and me is ridiculous. It's like 99.6% German or something like that. I'm yeah. tall, you know, I'm like symmetrical. Like I, I fit a lot of these like things that I look like, whatever, a a bad guy, like a villain or something like that nowadays. In movies. But,
0: uh, <laughs> I I yeah. feel like the walk around society looking like a villain. <laughs> I don't
1: <know>. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but like, um, but I, I guess it's a couple of things that I, I have a different attempt. So it depends on who I'm talking to. I'm talking to like a, you know, a white liberal person might be a little bit different than if I talk to like, you know, uh, a black progressive or something like that. But um, a couple of things. One is like, if if someone else was saying what I'm saying, how would that resonate? You know, if I was like a a black trans person or something like that, but saying these exact same things, you know, mm-hmm. how would that feel? Or I point them towards people. You know, that's the cool thing about having my podcast. So if I had all these different people on my podcast who are like, you know, the whole the whole spectrum, you know, like I've had really progressive, you know, trans people, really conservative trans people. I've had, you know, like just whatever mix it is, you know, like I yeah. asked them if Thomas soul or Glenn Lowry or someone like that, Coleman Hughes has these certain viewpoints, you know, um, uh, Ian Rowe, who I had on my podcast has these certain yeah. viewpoints. What about that? Like, if you're just going after me attacking me because of my like immutable characteristics, why not just go after my ideas, you know? Mm. And like, I also have to acknowledge that, like, yeah, that's probably true. It's probably true that I can take these stances because of my personal life experiences and and things like that. That's probably true as well. But, yeah. like, we still have to contend with what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for those of the that are just listening, I put on a jacket. Well, one, because I'm just freezing my ass off right now in Northern California. But two, is what's interesting about just being able to put on a jacket is – there are certain immutable traits that you can't do anything about. And yet you have to operate and walk in society in a way in which I can never put on a jacket or I can't take, you can't take off your color, right? You can't take off the social hierarchy that you're in or the position you're in. So when a student is sitting there, right, in a classroom, and let's say they see your clip, they see a clip that's going around, let's say it's doing really well. And um, let's say it's like one of the recent clips that have been focused on a specific cultural issue where you're trying to walk what you would say is a middle of the road position. Do you feel like that interrupts their ability to learn in the classroom environment? And, and how do you navigate that specifically? Um, because I would imagine when I was in high school and like, I had a cool teacher like you and he was a freaking influencer online, I'd be like, man, this dude's the shit. Like, how do you, how do you navigate
1: just a classroom yeah. environment? Um, it's weird, because, like, as far as school teachers go, like this is gross thing, but like, yeah, I'm cool. Like if I was a club promoter, I wouldn't be cool, but like, the bars <laughs> is still low. <laughs> like like school teachers are just such dorks that it is like, you know, I mean, and and we're in a, living in a world where um, you know, social media clout matters, so my students are all like they're concerned about how many likes and follows and stuff like that. I mean, I do talk to them about that, like why? Like, My why is pretty clear. My why is to promote what I promote in the classroom, get you civically engaged and bring viewpoint diversity and searching for truth and things like that. You know, what's your why for why you even want followers and stuff like that? Because that wasn't my goal. It was just to, you know, spark questions and thought. Um, But if if something's like going viral, like I had a, a conversation like two years ago now, uh go kind of viral and a couple of newspapers picked it up where I had a conversation with three critical race theory uh teachers, K through 12 um educators and advocates. Uh and it got kind of picked up. But um as much attention as that gets, I just again lean into curiosity. If they say like, you know, I don't like the way you handle that, well what specifically? How should I have handled that? Uh I, I've been really lucky. I haven't gotten a lot of pushback where people can can pinpoint like I did this wrong. And then sometimes I'm not perfect but like when i do get it wrong that i admit it yeah i could have handled that better but i try to just address it head on i don't like circumvent it i don't talk about my my social media and my my podcast much in the classroom i try to keep those worlds somewhat separate but when they do bleed into each other i just address it i'm 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 a really i'm an open book
0: yeah yeah what uh what inspired you to be a teacher why did you, why did you start on, on the teaching track? Now that you're about to start your eighteenth yeah, year tomorrow, it's crazy. Um, Which is insane to think. By the way, oh, I'm twenty-four. Yeah, that's I I just it, just to make you, you know really get feel feel a little emotional about it. That's that's approximately seventy-five percent of my life. So so <laughs> what, what inspired <laughs> you, you to? You stay? graduated like 20, 2017 or something. I graduated college in twenty twenty. I graduated high school in in twenty sixteen.
1: Yeah, sixteen. 2016,
0: yeah. Was a crazy time, man. Twenty sixteen, I graduated yeah. high school, and then twenty twenty, I graduated college. It's like. And now 24, it's like every four years, the world goes upside down during my life events.
1: 20, yeah, 2016, I remember right after Trump was elected, I had um, a couple of students crying in the classroom. and There were teachers at my school crying. And I was just like, hold on guys. Like, what is he going to stop you? What good in the world is he going to stop you from doing? So go out and do it. And then when he stops you from doing good in the world, then come back to me and we'll 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 fight against that. Well, let's Let let's actually people. hold
0: well, let's hold on this for a second. I, I, I want to ask you about the teacher stuff and why, because that's really important to me. But actually there's such a such an interesting thing you brought up. I, I want I want to ask you. So you said that the students are crying they're they're struggling in the classroom, right? And, and teachers and crying, yeah. The teachers are crying. You know, I remember when when I was, I was a I had just gone to college. And so it was my freshman year. And I remember professors were trying to figure out, like, how do we deal with students? Like, you know, some students are incredibly happy, some students are upset. Like, how, what was it like going into the classroom the next day after,
1: you know, President Trump had won? It's November 5th, you know, 2016. Well, I had to eat some humble pie because the night before I was like, guys, don't worry, Hillary's got this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I was like a textbook following government teacher in 2016 so it was like you know follow what the polls say and follow what the newspapers say and look at the 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 trends and and it was just it was a very different thing so i had to come in and say i did this this sounds again kind of gross and like boisterous but like or um egotistical i suppose but like i was i did what i think a lot of the institutions should have done which is like where did i get this so wrong wow what did i miss and that that's that, that was also a catalyst for getting me down this road of like viewpoint diversity, my podcast and everything is like, I was missing some viewpoints here. I was missing why so many people, because I had friends back in Pennsylvania, they're like, wow, I've never seen a turnout like this. And I was like, that must be for the first woman president. And I, I just, I missed the missed the boat. And I think that's what a lot of people in positions of power did. And instead of going like, wow, where do we miss the boat? They just doubled down on like, it was whatever it was a. Like, false election or or it was crazy or he was manipulating whatever it is yeah uh but so i went in and it was just i just tried to address like i said like i tried to address it like don't let the government ever stop you from doing good good doing good in the world you know pursuing what you think is the best route for you so nothing's happened yet i had concerns too i was like all right well there goes the world It's, it's over you know this wild reality star has his finger on the button and he's and he's a loose cannon and it's just all going to hell and and so, but I was like, let's let's pause. I I'm, I'm scared too, guys. I'm with you because I don't. It's I don't know. scared' is the right word, but there's a lot of unknowns here. I've never had someone like this in this position. Uh, but let's sit back and watch. Let's be patient. I think that's a big thing with a lot of like news stories. Is like let's just sit back and watch it and not just like make assumptions about where we know it's going to go. Because obviously, there's a lot of curveballs. This is a recurring theme throughout the
0: conversations we've had. I mean, last episode, as the guests know, we, we had Andrew Yang on before that. We've had folks like Monica Guzman on who talk a lot about curiosity and and the creation of these values that you're mentioning. Is there a specific reason why you feel like you're more likely to be patient in these scenarios? Is there a specific reason why you feel like your instinct is towards curiosity as opposed to, I don't know, maybe being a prisoner of your ideology or ideas? Do you think there's some human nature aspect to it? Do you think it was how you were raised? Is it your value system? Like what about you makes you
1: more likely to be curious and open-minded and humble and patient? Um, I think a lot of it is, I I had a conversation with uh, Eric Weinstein and he has, he has like learning disabilities, even though he's like crazy, you know, smartest man on the planet or whatever. And, uh, and his kids have learning disabilities, even though they're all like geniuses. And one of the things he said, you can pull my learning disabilities from my cold dead hands, something like that. Like, it's actually a superpower. And I was never a, a bright guy. Like, I didn't get good grades. I didn't try hard in school. I w- I'm not like naturally uh, very intelligent. I'm not dumb. Like, IQ wise, I'm probably above average, but like, just in general, um, I'm just, I just never thought of myself as like a high horsepower brain person. So, what I did was I leaned into not knowing, being curious. I just, I was like, I've been wrong so many times about so many things that why not just lean into trying to find the right answer and connect my ego not to having the right answer but to finding it and if you're trying to find the right answer rather than have it you have to be patient you have to take in as much data as possible to try and vet all that's out there to get to the right answer so i think it was just i think i'm actually gifted i'm at a school now like an elite private school that has a lot of people with phd's and are really really smart teachers but in that, you have a lot of ego and you have a lot of, of like feeling like you have the right answer. You're the expert. So whatever you have to say isn't going to help me. And I think that's what I don't have. I don't think that I'm right. I, I assume that I'm wrong and I try and always challenge that. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's why I lean a lot more into curiosity and being humble. Of Like, I might be wrong, but here's what I think at the moment. Is there a way to have
0: that mindset reflected
1: in public policy? Because I think a lot of people's
0: critique of the COVID pandemic was that, you know, you've got these experts, and these experts have certain opinions, certain ideas. And it almost seemed like a lot of folks criticize experts for having opinions that they thought were set in stone and now are backtracking in some ways. A case in point is something like the Wuhan lab leak or 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 some of the science are in masking. Um it, how do you have a mindset of humility and yet still embossed in expertise out there? Because we do need experts. Like, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know anything about COVID or biology or anything like that. We do need to listen. And yet it feels like a lot of people grate really deeply against this notion that experts are just better than them and they give this like, condescending vibe to it. So how do you navigate being an expert and also being open to learning and mesh that into public policy?
1: Yeah, that's tough because, you know, sales is all about confidence and a lot of public policy people in charge pol- politics is a lot of just confidence. Like, yeah. you know, the right yeah. answer. And that, when people are scared because of like a pandemic or something, like you're scared because there's a fire in your building. The person who walks in is like, I got this, follow me. It's like, oh, okay, let's go. So it's a weird thing because you can't be that and be, you know, humble and say like, that ah, might not be right. That's a really, really tricky balance. Um I don't know. I mean, I'm doing it, but I'm doing it on a really small scale and I'm not in like, you know, the, the public sphere in that way. Like I haven't been elected to an office where people are counting on me to, to be the leader. But I think I think admitting when you're wrong goes a long way. And I think just um, transparency goes a long way. I think people can you know, saying like I, we think this based on this data, here's where we're thinking. And we're going to try our best. Here's what it is. I'm going to try not to be wrong, but we might be wrong, but we're going to try not to be wrong. I think after, especially after what happened with the pandemic and stuff like that, I think that people will resonate with that. People will resonate with, I'm not perfect. I'm all over the place. But I have my ideas kind of, I don't know if all over the place is the right thing, but like I I have... um, like my reasons for believing what I do, I'm gonna try my best. Here's why we're leading. I think that lack of transparency, Manu, was has been a huge issue with a lot of stuff. Whether it leads into QAnon and and uh, and conspiracy theories and stuff like that, is where ambiguities exist. Assumptions are made. So we're like, why did this policy go through? It doesn't seem to line up. I guess they're bringing masks back now to like some universities and so, and some like movie sets out here. It's like, why? It's just like, give me some good reasons why. And then if you break down like the data, whatever it is, then you you have to kind of sell us that way, as opposed to just because I said so. I don't know. That's kind of all over the place. Does that make sense, though?
0: Well, I, 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 the, the phrase ambiguities lead to assumptions um, yeah, and and they, assumptions yeah. can lead Talk to assumptions, right? Uh, let's take the other side of the argument. I, I'm hearing right now somebody listening and saying, no, I want you to ask Will this, which is, you're assuming that everybody's capable of an equal level of critical thinking, or that if the government was transparent, that tomorrow everybody would feel educated, right? Um, That seems to have like a more optimistic take on humans. And I'll take myself, it's so funny that you say that you weren't the brightest bulb in the shack. I barely got into college, I barely made it out. They barely let me in. And then they barely let me out. They were like, you know what, you might just stay here. And I don't know if I, you know, I, I still don't, it's, it's funny, it's weird to admit, but I don't think I've still read a single actual scientific study on COVID. I have a lot of opinions on it, but, it, and it's weird for me to admit, but I don't think I've read a single actual scientific study. And so there's a, a big podcast world push to say, let's be more transparent, let's be more open, and yet
1: we've got to deal with the fact that
0: not everybody actually makes the most of transparency. So how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, like that's the, that's the thing. It's like if they tell us that whatever, aliens exist, then some people are going to go out and start shooting machine guns up in the sky, yeah. right? <laughs> like that kind of idea. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. very real.
0: Or it's like, it's like with your kids, right? Like I would assume, like my parents didn't tell me everything. They, they told me things because, that they felt like I could comprehend and understand. Like when they would have challenges, they wouldn't be like, we're having challenges. Um, so how do you deal
1: with that in the public policy arena? Um, I know how to deal with it in a classroom. So my classroom is consists of kids who are very very um you know neurologically and and inte- intellectually diverse. You know there's there's smart kids and dumb kids for lack of a better term. um and so Just what I name. try to yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jimmy he's he's dull. Um but uh, but what I do is I try to relate the material to something that 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 they can all get. So it's hard, but you look for the over the the common things that everyone can kind of get on board. The really basic stuff about you know caring for your family, you know wanting to find your own success, blah blah blah. blah. But I don't know if like the science science rhetoric is really what, what you're going for. Like, I don't think that's really what we're going for. I think you have to break it down to simple. That's a, that's what I see my job as. I, I don't think teachers are the ones that hold the information, then can give it to someone like the sage on the stage, because we have phones that have, that know way more than the best, you know, teacher as far as like knowledge. You know, Mr. Rish, who was the, you know, 22nd president? It's like, I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I can Google it really quickly. I don't see that as my job. The job of a teacher, the way I see it, um, would be to be a translator. Hmm. So here's the information. Here's the individual. How do you translate this information to an individual in a way that that makes sense to them? That's my job. So in a public policy standpoint, that's possible is you need people to translate it to others in a way that makes sense to them. And you can do that through scaling of, of, of technology and stuff like that with people that have just a voice that resonates. Joe Rogan's really, really popular. Why? Well, I think that because the way he talks is actually very simple. He takes very complex ideas. He had Sir Roger Penrose on and like all these you know Nobel yes. Prize winning super smart people. But he breaks it down in a very simple way. I think that's a big reason why he's so popular is he is also kind of like a meathead curious guy and he can break it down in a very simple way and i think that's extremely useful and i think for someone in public policy i think if you can if you can understand complex issues and break it down simply breaking something down simply hits all levels right i mean you know simple ideas can 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 catch the super geniuses at mensa and it can catch the people who are you know working blue collar jobs with dirt under the fingernails
0: yeah. I mean, it's it's all about meeting people where they are. I don't know if you know Andrew Huberman, but he's a case in point of somebody like this. He launched a podcast in 2021. And over the next two years, he's become the number six podcaster in the world. And, and to your point, like, it's so interesting that you think about teaching as translation as opposed to necessarily teaching, right? It's it's how do you meet your students and provide information in a way where almost it aligns with the principles of the whole majority. I and mean, the entire reason behind this podcast was that I think most people in this country are aligned on how to think. They might disagree on what to think, but they might be aligned on how. They're aligned on behavior and temperament. Like they're, I think most people are wanting to be curious. I think most people are open-minded. I think people want to have these conversations. The question is like, how do you create the norms for it? So here's where I want to take this next. You're in a classroom we talked about 2016, we talked about Trump and he comes in and it's basically a wrecking ball. How was teaching civics before Trump and after Trump, in AT and BT, for lack of a better word, like, how was it different? Like,
1: do, do you, fe- do you feel like there was a difference at all
0: in, in education? Uh, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that because he was so different from like the status quo, like he never had a job in government for example. Uh, But I had to educate my students on who Donald Trump was before he was a politician. I mean, he was, I I have these clips of him, like as like a guest star on all these shows from fresh Prince to, you know, you know, sex in the city and all this kind of stuff. He was like, welcomed by rappers. And like, he was like kind of like a beloved celebrity to some degree. I don't know if like beloved, but he was like a funny kind of staple just like around, like no one was really angry with him or anything like that. So, so I just had to like educate people a little bit on, on who he was also his past. I mean, I'm personally, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I find myself defending him a lot. uh, Just because I think that there are, here's the thing about Trump too, that I had to kind of break down to my classes and I do on social media as well is like the danger with, with his critiques is that they go after him for things that aren't true. And that's a problem because there's a lot to go after him for. That's true. I mean, he had all these people work on his casinos that never paid them. He, you know, went into these poor communities and kicked everyone out of their homes and leveled the buildings to build some luxurious, you know, compound or something like that. Like, there's a lot of stuff that he did that was not good. Let's focus on that. Even as president, there were things that he did that weren't good. Let's focus on that. But instead, they went off and and almost like boy who cried wolf and focused on things that ended up not being true. And now that's just going to embolden his supporters and him to be like, see what they're saying is not true. You know, I, somebody has to tell my students, I ask my students, I say, how many times does your best friend have to lie to your face before you stop trusting them? And they typically say like once or twice. I was like, so why do you trust like news outlets or individuals several times? You know, the fire festival, that whole thing. Like, yeah, you know these celebrities were like, go to this thing. It was, it's going to be a wonderful party, and that turned out to be a disaster. It's like if they promote anything ever again, you should at the very <laughs> least be skeptical. Yeah. So let's apply the way we are with our best friends to these institutions and organizations that we don't even know or have a connection with.
0: If Donald Trump was forced to be your student and he had to sit through your high school civics class, what would you want him to take
1: away from it? He'd be tricky. He he's so um <laughs> ego. Up, I mean, I, I, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a therapist. Can you imagine like a little like 16 year old Donald Trump? What he must have been like? <laughs> um, but uh, he's a really interesting guy. You could have like, the world.
0: Well, you could have educated him at 16. Oh my gosh!
1: God, damn it. Yeah, like Ken Gillette said, like he doesn't like music. Like he's just such a weird, like a real, like I'm not a psychologist, but it seems like a, just a classical nurse, he a classic drink, narcissist. Which is, he doesn't drink. At yeah. all doesn't drink he's just he's a really good marketer he's just it really like seems like a self-centered person like i think he probably worked to, i don't know about really hard but he want because he didn't read like his daily briefings and stuff like that in the white house but uh but i think he wanted america to be successful but i don't know if he wanted it to be successful for like the individuals i think so he could get the glory i think but yeah look whatever i mean you know we the emancipation proclamation was to try and recruit black soldiers into the the North, the union army. So, I mean, is that take away from the, the good it did? I don't know. I think the way I would approach a kid like Donald Trump, if you as a kid is attacking his, um, his, his ego. I think I've had students like that where they're, they're right about everything. They, and the cool thing about being even a, a, not so bright, the brightest bulb 40 year old is I'm smarter when it comes to like life, when it comes to wisdom, I'm more wise Than even a really, really smart, high IQ, 17 year old. Like Mm -hmm. I know more about life. You know, I've just, it's just time. So in that I humble them about what they know. I just met with my advisory. They're ninth grade, but I just met with my advisory two days ago and they were saying something like borderline racist and about like Martin Luther King and the times and black people getting arrested or something like that. And I just like dropped all kinds of like facts about, um, even during segregation and what the black community was doing during segregation and uh, the single parent household rate was really low and, and all that kind of stuff. And they just didn't know what to say. So I think the approach with Donald Trump would be to humble him, get him to admit that he doesn't know everything, that he has a lot of room to grow and a lot of room to learn and listen to people. And I think that that's, that would be the probably the best thing for him is to be more open-minded, get rid of some of that. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's like that, that, like, I'm just getting a brain fart because we're recording, but it's like that, uh, the re- where you just like, uh, it's like ego, but it's like, yeah. I know everything. It's like, it's kind of like
0: a, a feeling of, of, of self importance, but I, I know what you mean, which is that you're just always, you feel like you're on it always. And that everybody, yeah. is, no one else is at your level. Yeah.
1: Like just that, that, that element of, of, like I got this, I, no one else can tell me what to do. I, I'll look how successful I am. Look how good I am. And I you, have kids like that, that are good at everything. They're good athletes. They're good at grades, blah, blah, blah. But luckily I can take them down and, and like, you're still 17 kid. Like you still have a lot to learn about a lot. And I think that's good for them. I think it's good for Come all on, of us to get our great. ego in check. You 17 year old get, 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 yeah. get, get yeah. schooled
0: a little bit. It's So it's interesting. So you would say that the main thing that you would try to work with Donald Trump on if he was 17 years old is ego. Yeah. Now, let's let's take somebody like a Joe Biden today. Um, his personality seems much harder to read, I would say. Um, it's harder to tell, though he's got a big life story, but he seems much less out there, at least from my standpoint. Um, what would you
1: do for uh, Joe Biden if he was in your classroom? So it's, it's, it's interesting because Joe Biden at 80, who you are at 80 isn't who you are at you know 17. 50 and it's not who you are at 17. Right. Like, so it's hard to say. I think he is a politician. I mean, he has that, when he flashes that smile, he looks like, like, <laughs> like what AI Your would say, life. like make a, make a politician in the yep. lab. Like he looks like that. So I don't know. I mean, he's, he's good. I don't know enough, I guess um, about that. I think for him, cause he, he's like, he's crossed the aisle before, but now he's leaning more into like partisan stuff. I don't know how much he's even in charge. Like, I don't know how much he's making decisions and, and things along those lines. Um, he's He'd be a tougher one to read. I'd have to look back more when he was like uh, a senator and things like that. I mean, he supported things. I mean, even fairly recently, he supported things uh, like, like and you know, he was against gay marriage and stuff like that, you know, whatever it was, 10 years ago. So I think uh, what I would probably promote to him, just thinking off the cuff like, like this, it would be to take stances. If you're a real politician, then I would say take stances that you actually believe in, be able to articulate them and then defend them. And if you, they change because of new data, then you explain what the new data and new information coming your way that actually changed your mind. And you're not just going with whatever the wind blows. So I think for someone who's like a career politician like that, I would say like show some like a backbone about what you believe in and why, and then only change it with a lot of transparency about what you did.
0: So with thinking about these career politicians, and you think about these these people that um, are like Joe Biden that have been around for a long time and are often, it seems like, motivated. I would say I wouldn't I don't know Joe Biden enough. I honestly don't know a lot of political figures enough to make claims yet. I've met most of them that that are in positions of power. It seems like you you enter the system as a good person and you actually care, but then it seems like the system sort of spits you out, you know, and you come out like this weird transformed individual. Andrew Yang and I were talking about this in the last episode about how the system in some ways appears rigged in certain ways, or that his claim is that the system is set up in a way that incentivizes us to divide. It's all focused on profit. When you're talking to your kids, right, and it's, it's civics class and students are thinking about service or they're thinking about what they want to do with their careers, do you, and they say, you know, public service seems like an absolute shit show. There's like, there's, there's no chance that I'm going there. And yet we need some of our brightest bulbs to be public servants. You know, we have real problems to solve as a country. What, what do you say to a kid that's sitting there and says, I don't want to even touch that. Um, and yet they would be a great public
1: servant. I think most don't. I think it's it's, a, it's rare. I mean, who gets into politics? Politics, um, my, my buddy Rob Montz makes cool um, documentaries, and he made one about how Trump was inevitable because we took the presidency and we made it into something that had far more power than it was ever designed for and far more celebrity and fame than it was ever designed for. So you get people that want power and fame. Like that's, and then you, of course, you're gonna get Donald Trump. That's what he wants. So it's power and fame. Like that's the kind of, and I think that's, that's what we get, not just Donald Trump. I think that's what we get with a lot of politics. It's like power and, and fame and people who are good hearted and just, it's like, why immerse myself in whatever the swamp or that, that ugly world? I think you have to believe in something bigger than yourself and that's i think that's lacking in a lot of a lot of communities right now it's lacking a lot of people you look at the data on how you know alone and anxious and people are. i think a lot of that goes back to that you know lack of meaning lack of purpose um believing in something bigger than yourself people aren't as religious anymore they're not in communities and stuff like that like they like they used to be like we're designed to be uh so it's it's tough i think uh starting small and recognizing that i try to um bring my students out to like You know, volunteer at Skid Row and things like that, just to see. Because when you see progress, when you see like you know, a lot of my students go into like finance or they go into like you know some corporate job where you're typing away, and at the end of the day, there's nothing to show for it. We went and we built houses with like a a Habitat for Humanity, and I was asking the construction workers. I've worked some blue collar jobs before, and I understand this, but my students didn't. And I asked them like, "What's the benefit of this?" The guy's like, "Well, I'm building this wall, this retaining wall." It wasn't here this morning. It'll be here in eight hours. I did that. And like that showing of like what you did actually is there and it's going to make a difference. That's huge. And it, even if it starts small, like uh, ocean clean. I mean, I'm a, I'm biased. I do like, I like Tulsi Gabbard a lot and, uh, and Tulsi, you know, started because it was like ocean cleanup. It was like trying to stop the drilling of some, something that would poison a water supply. Like those little winds help. You know, RFK, really interesting candidate out right now. And he, you know, as an environmental lawyer, they'll try to stop like poison going into water and and pollution and stuff like that. Like getting those wins feels good. It taps into something that just having cash doesn't necessarily tap into. I think that a lot of kids go into the pursuits of finance and fame because it's something quantifiable that they can say like, all right, look, I'm successful. Parents too. My kid goes to Yale. It's like, I'm a good parent, I guess, because my kid goes to Yale. And I think you get those wins in a deeper sense when you, when you see the the purpose of it. So that's how I try to get my kids to understand the importance of engagement.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I've uh, told you this. I didn't know you were a Tulsi fan. I spent a decent amount of time with her in May and we might actually have her on the podcast. And what's interesting about somebody like Tulsi is, uh, or you take a gang or sort of these like unorthodox, heterodox figures that kind of straddle the line are on, on various different sides of the political spectrum or, or they they just seem like they're thinking for themselves. You know, it seems like a trait that's in short supply these days. It, it seems like they seem relatively shielded from the incentive structures of, of it all. It's like in social media, there's some influencers that are selling out to the crowd. Right. Or there's audience capture. And then some folks like you who are just like, this is my lane. This is what I care about. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't. It is what it is, and I'm still trying to sell to you. But it is what it is. What do you think makes politicians more likely to be susceptible to audience capture, to the crowd, to their label, to the party, and 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 less susceptible to just their own morals or principles?
1: I, I think just it's by design, right? I mean, you're trying to get people where a you know a republic where people got to got vote you in, you know, through a democratic process. So. You have to, by definition, be liked. I mean, again, I spent a lot of time in, in high school. In high school, and uh, and who wins class president? Typically, it's not the kid who's the best at the, at like you know organizing budgets and stuff like that. It's the one that promises you all kinds of things. It's the most popular kid. It's the most popular kid. Okay, so you know, just you're who, you're who liked. Out of water it's the kid that says "cooling out of water friends." Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you yeah. say what people want to hear. You go around. You kind of flash a smile. You you know if you're handsome or pretty, that helps like all that kind of stuff, just like president really helps. So I think that it's just by nature. It's like, I have to be liked in order to keep my job. I have to get people to vote for me and like me to keep my job and being liked seems to be more important than having, you know, the right answers because the right answers can sometimes be unpopular, you know, like cutting programs that, 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 You know, if you're cutting some sort of funding to something, that's never popular. You know, cutting taxes is always popular. So, you're the idea of like, you know, we're going to always be like pushed to uh, bring in less money, but spend more. So, just keep promoting that kind of stuff. I think that just by design, uh, politicians. Have to be liked. They have to be um, liked to the point where people go. You know what? I I want this person. They, you know, George W. Bush has voted because they said he was the one who people would want to have a beer with. Yeah, that really. Ma- Obama, like yeah. if Obama walks in the room, you get like little schoolgirlish like. Hey, hey. Oh, Matt yeah. Taibbi talks about that in his book in a uh, Hate Inc. How they were supposed to be covering you know the candidate when he was running in 2008, and they were like, I wonder if he's going to come over and they're hang hanging out with, with us. Them. They're they're That's, hanging. Yeah, having that charm element you know, um, uh, uh, Bill Clinton had that too. I have friends that like have met him and, and he had that, like just he knows your name. He knows everything about it. He's just slick. But when I met Tulsi, she had that too, but it just had a different feel. It just, it felt very genuine. And I don't know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe it's genuine Bill Clinton and stuff like that too. But,
0: um, yeah, you know, I spent, I spent, um, nice. last week, I, I think, I might've mentioned this on, on our podcast, but I was with Vivek Ramaswamy for a little bit and funny, enough, I. I think he reminds me of um, forgetting the substance of what he actually says. He kind of gives me Obama on, on Red Bull vibes. You know, he's like, he's very eloquent, very articulate, but a lot faster. He's very sharp. He's to the point. And I'm just curious, like, you know, when you think about these political figures at this moment, like how many of them? when they're actually in high school, right. And they're like in your civics class, like, could you say I can accurately predict that this kid's going to, going to, you know, do this. Cause it, and, and, and where this question's coming from is for my sense, like I was never like close to class president or anything. Like I, I've never held it. Uh, like I literally was like this, like, I mean, we talked about this in your conversation when you asked me about, you know, like, why didn't I go into investment banking or finance or whatever? Why do I do what I do? Like I was this like pretty insecure, like chubby kid with like very little leadership potential. So like, how, do you do you find that you
1: can track it pretty well? Um, that's tricky because I yeah I was the same way. Like no one kind of saw like friends that I grew up with that are like wait you're on Instagram you're like you know like I get yeah. recognized like sometimes on Disneyland or something you like that. Got, you got the yeah, point. it's weird yeah because i was really under the radar and my wife who has you know successful in her realm is it was kind of like that too like no one kind of saw you and you're probably similar when you like no one saw you coming you know to do this kind of stuff you know run an organization and stuff like that but um no and it's really hard to predict and here's why is i've had really brilliant students that could could like really smart really you know um they're they're smart all the ways you can be smart kids who can just like crack, crack out a a Rubik's cube real quick. And, you know, knows knows algorithms and does that got patents while they're still in high school. I have kids that are, um, you know, super athletic and, and charming, but there's so many different things pulling on young people. You know, when you're 17, a lot of things can happen. You know, I taught, um, in like a really tough area for a while. And there were a couple of like, a lot of times there were girls, you know, they were like, usually like Hispanic, like El Salvadorian or Mexican, um, girls who are really smart and on their way to the Ivy Leagues and then they met a guy and they showed up to school you know senior year or something like that they had a neck tattoo of the guy's name and it just and it just fell off and they started they were pregnant 6 months later and then they never went to college so it, there's a lot of things that can come up you know a kid it loves building things he wants to be an engineer he's, he's uh, you know building all his trinkets and 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 all the kinds of cool things and then some firm rolls up and says like, Hey, you want to come work finance for us? It'll pay this amount. And he hasn't gotten, you know, a lot of girlfriends cause he's been, you know, in his basement building, soldering stuff together forever. And he's like, Oh, if I have, I get a lot of money. I drive an Audi R8, then I'll get a girl. Then yeah, I'm going to go into finance, you know, kids who yeah. uh, know, no computers and want to do like the right thing and build something, get into entrepreneurship. Um, and then that, you know, Facebook or Google comes along, offers them some money and they just, they just take it. It's really hard. I think the most, the biggest predictor would be, the ones who, who push back, the ones who, who don't follow the sheep, who don't follow the, the herd. I think that's the biggest determining factor that I've seen, um, of like kids who are successful and kids who aren't is not their abilities. It's more just their, their willingness to do what feels right to them and not go with the crowd.
0: It's that sort of contrarian nature. Um, mm-hmm. huh. do you think, what do you think about the state of civic education today?
1: It's almost non existent? Do
0: you, do you think, do you think mean, do you, yeah? What's your take on it?
1: Well, if you look at the um, like the state standards from across the country, every state, if you don't know, every state has their standards for every class about what needs to get covered, and it's covered on like a like an exam or something like that. If you're doing like standardized tests for the state, uh, but civics isn't covered in most of the 50 states. There's like electives, you know, electives like mine's an elective. There is a government. And economics. Yeah. So a lot of states have one semester of government education. I never have any, by the way. No government education? No. No civics. There's no civics. Class. Yeah. Okay, so did you... You never learn like, ra- how many senators ra- ra- there are and stuff? Sorry? You never learned, like, how many senators there are and... No. Okay, yeah, I mean, so... It's almost non-existent. And when I was given the opportunity, I've written a couple of classes. I wrote a cool uh, sociology class that was based on the Simpsons television show where we'd watch episodes and pick out like different Uh sociology ideas and stuff. So I've written a couple of classes and got them like approved for the UC system and stuff like that. But I was given the opportunity to do one. And I was like, what class should I teach? And I was thinking about doing a US history class in 1968. So cool stuff. Interesting stuff happened then. But then I talked to some people and I heard people talk about the importance of civic education. Uh, I talked to Ben Shapiro because he was in the community when he lived in in uh, Los Angeles. He was part of this Orthodox Jewish community that I teach in. So I talked to him and he talked about the importance of civic education. I heard the importance of civic education from a lot of different people that I thought were smart. And I was like, hmm, all right. Yeah. So the importance of, of being a citizen, the rights and responsibilities. And I heard Jordan Peterson talk a lot about the rights and responsibilities, um, But it's almost non-existent. And I don't know, put on the tinfoil hat. It seems like it could be by design. I mean, if you are in a position, do you want a lot of younger people knowing exactly how to uproot you from your position and take over your spot? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it that's an interesting kind of concept, but I think it's easier just to keep people ignorant. And how many people are ignorant about big issues that they vote on. It's it's fascinating. I I knew someone who was a an abortion uh, a pro-choice advocate, you know, marched on Washington, all that kind of stuff. And she was in her like late, late 60s. And she's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, Trump's gonna pull back Roe v. Wade, which ended up happening and stuff like that. But this is like back in like 2017, 18. I go, let me ask you, what would happen if Roe v. Wade got repealed? And without even hesitation, she's like abortion is done in America. Abortions will be illegal. I was like, that's not true. just gets rolled back to the state. It's like really. It's like yeah. Google it. It was fascinating. Like people have these really strong convictions about things they don't know. Guns. Guns is a big one. Like do you know? Like they don't even know what a semi-automatic gun is. Semi-automatic like rifle. They don't know about gun laws. So I think that's a real problem. Is is keeping people ignorant because then they're easy to manipulate and get their vote. And I think that. I don't know if it's by design, but it's working out really, really well. Because if you have an informed population, then there's a lot more nuance, and they're gonna—they're not just gonna blindly follow what you say that sounds good. They're gonna ask a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, on on episode twelve, which which is the last one, um, Andrew Yang and I talked not about. We talk about authoritarianism, but one of the things that he said that was interesting was that it's more likely that we're like we're we're going to slump into authoritarianism, right? It, that that apathy actually breeds authoritarianism. This idea that, again, as you're saying, it's much easier. To control and rule a society where people are not informed and plugged in, than it is the other way around. It's also much easier to just scare the shit out of people <laughs> that way. Yeah. Like if, if, like right now, the Democratic Party runs in neighborhoods and they're like, "You'll never get be able to get an abortion ever again," or Republicans roll yeah. into you know rural communities and say, "Like you're never going to own another firearm ever again in your life if this senator gets elected." And it's just the the logical chain for that reality is is nearly impossible. So yeah. the question becomes. How do you, like, do you try to make civic education interesting? Do you try to make it fun? Like, how How do you do the entire thing so that when a student is coming into the classroom, they leave a classroom, they they feel some degree of investment in the system?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of fear comes from a lot of ignorance. I mean, a lot, you know, yeah. you think about, like, people who are scared of snakes often don't know the difference between a venomous snake and a, and a non-venomous snake. Neat. That's me.
0: Yeah. I jump like crazy when I see a gardener snake.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. My, yeah, my wife is too, like really petrified of anything. Like even at the zoo, she has to be like 10 feet away from the glass. But she doesn't know anything about snakes. She can't identify them or anything like that. I think that happens with police officers. I think that there's a lot of ignorance about different communities and different like,
0: like,
1: your way that people are. So it's like if you're if you don't know about the population that you're policing, then you're going to be scared of things. You're going to think things are threatening when they're not. Like I have a friend who's like Greek. And just so families just loud. They're just loud people. You now I have a friend who's a, who's a, a police officer, a black police officer in, in LA. And he's like, when I have a white partner, we roll up to like a black uh, family, like gathering or something like that. He's like, I got this. Cause I know how they talk essentially, you know? So, so in that way, I think that, that we have to fight the ignorance. So um, it's gonna combat the fear is just learning more about it. How do I do that in the civics class is just taking these ideas and Flushing them out like deep, 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 deep. The first day, so tomorrow's my first day of, of school. And on the first day, my I teach civics, and then I also teach GovEcon. First day of my GovEcon tomorrow, I'm gonna do a whole lecture on guns and the complex nature of stopping gun violence. And it's it's long, it's like a whole thing. And I have a slideshow for it. I think it's on on YouTube actually. Um, but it's really, really complex. And I just want them to get a little frustrated. I have students tell me all the time. Mr. Roosh, I was certain about mm-hmm. all these things. Then I took your class and now I don't know what to believe. And it's like, well, good, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you're not. So uh, by the way, the word I was looking for was hubris. Like ah, that. Yep. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's, th- I'm trying to, to fight that. I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And I do a whole unit in my, in the, toward the end of the year of my civics class on unintended consequences. <sighs> so you could have good intentions, but that could lead to terrible things, you know. The road to hell is paved in good intentions, and I have the students all research examples of unintended consequences from, you know, thalidomide that that medication that gave kids birth defects to, I mean, all kinds of stuff. You know, the the um, the lockdowns during COVID or whatever it is. The 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 what is it called? The cobra, the the cobra problem or whatever it is in in India. Do you know about that? Like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like they put a bounty on cobras, so they started breeding cobras. And they went crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they went crazy. So those unintended consequences, I think that that's a big uh, part of, of the, the theme of my civics classes and my, my government classes is that, you know, you need to keep your head on a swivel and look for all the things where you could be wrong. And that should be fun. You know, trying to, like, discover how you're wrong so you get a little bit closer to where you're right is, I think, a big part of it. That's all right. That seems interesting to young people too. Like they like, they like having these, like, you know, like they like discovery. They, they actually do. They like learning about that kind of stuff. They like kind of being, having ideas that they're old, that like their parents or their older cousins, or their older siblings don't know about, you know, these little tidbits, these cool stories and stuff like that. They seem to like, There's
0: there's almost a certain degree of like challenging authority to it. There's a, there's a degree of skepticism. And I think young people, appreciate being skeptical especially at this moment you know like somebody like my age i mean you're like born around 9 11 you go to the middle school around you know great recession you graduate high school in 2016 you graduate college in 2020 like the sample size of american democracy is not boundless progress it's it's actually yeah. quite the opposite
1: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah gonna, for sure
0: how, how do you like you're going to walk into this class tomorrow and, got to be and you're going to talk about guns and and obviously you're going to complexify it it's interesting that you think about teaching as complexifying narratives like the 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 tagline of the show is build nuance fight outrage how do you like teach anything today like the gun topic tomorrow without it being politicized like how how do you go into a civics class and you talk about you know how great the constitution is and then also its flaws like how do you uh, do you do you, like give disclaimers at the start of a lecture? Like do you like, hey, suspend your thoughts and like let's actually go on this journey together? Like, what's your tactic to approaching these issues with with a degree of nuanced analysis where people aren't immediately jumping to conclusions? Cause I bet it's much harder to teach a lesson and a student comes in, they're already locked in, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think I, I actually start with the slideshow with the Epictetus quote of like, it's it's impossible to teach something to a man who already, you know, has it known or something like that what he already knows who thinks he already knows um there's a lot of you know quotes like that you know um but i am not the like i said before like i'm not the bearer of the information we are on a journey together the journey should be like do you agree that we should cut down on gun violence in america everyone's on board with that okay how do we do that I don't know, but here's what I think. And it's kind of cool because I remember what it's like to be 17 because in a lot of ways, I still am. I still have that, like trying to figure out the world thing. Like, I guess I'm an adult. I have three kids and a mortgage. So like, I guess I'm an adult, but like, I don't feel like an adult. Do you feel like an adult? No, I, well, I'm definitely not an adult <laughs> by, by <laughs> all measures, but, but, but it's not by your all point. measures, by legal measures you are. Yeah, technically, I guess, I my guess. My students I, would say you're a grown up. You run a sister, company.
0: <laughs> my sister would very much disagree with what you're saying, but you know, it's interesting that you say, I, it, I know what you're getting. I want you to keep going on this thread of, yeah. it's like the, the Stoics often said that the, the less, you know, the more closer you are to enlightenment because yeah. actually the more you know about things, the more you realize how complicated the world actually is.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, Socrates like, you know, I'm smart because I know that I know nothing. You know, I love the Ryan Holiday books and I think they're great. No, yeah. Trump should read Ego is the Enemy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I go in there and it's like, let's figure this out. And I say that I, I understand what it's like to be young because I already know the arguments. I know the arguments on about guns. So I, the slideshow kind of they're like well what about this i'm like click it's so, right it was the next one up like i kind of know where they're going uh but we're in this together to try and figure out how to stop it and if they say like well let's do a gun buyback program didn't australia do that like, click australia did it here's the actual numbers here's what actually happened here's what it would look like in america here's the cultural differences in america it's complex and i think that if, if it's like. I don't have the answer. We're on this journey together. I have a little bit more wisdom than you. I have a little bit more knowledge maybe because I'm, this is my area of expertise. But you guys have angles. You know, if we're trying to solve a problem, is it going to be solved by the person who just read the most books? Is it going to be solved by the person with the highest, horsepower brain? Or is it going to be solved by, by different perspectives and different viewpoints? Different people with different angles coming over and being like, that's wrong because I experienced this and it actually went down like that oh, okay, let's bring that in. I think that's how we solve problems. I think that's what makes America so awesome is the diversity that we have and always to be diverse. I mean, what does an American look like? You know, it's like, it's all over the place. Okay. Like what is an American into? What kind of music does an American like? Like all this diversity leads to so much creativity and it can be to a lot of problems. So I think that these culture wars are so unfortunate. The lack of, of like, the partisan fighting is so crazy to me because I think about it like the left needs the right and the right needs the left and they need to be working together. And it doesn't make sense to me that they don't, I, I get like, I get it, but like, I, it's wrong. If we're trying to actually solve problems, it's wrong. It's, it's the wrong way to go about it. What we need to do is look at the different, you know, the diversity in the way people think. I love uh, John Haidt's Righteous Mind. That book was really an eye opener for me. And, and understanding that people with different uh, moral foundations are going to see problems that you didn't see coming. And that's really important. We should have listened to more people during COVID. We should have listened to more people during, you know, before 9 11. We should have listened to a lot of different people, but we, we had that hubris and we had our, our blindfolds on. So, uh, to answer your question, I think that's, that's how uh, I try to approach these issues is really like, you might know something I don't sincerely like you might and i also offer extra points if a kid um fact checks me and proves me
0: wrong interesting that's that's cool that that part is interesting i'll I'll tell you what an american looks like an american looks like a a human with an oversized nfl jersey sitting down on sundays to watch eight hours of football that's about to start two weeks and just eating nachos and just feeling like an absolute slob that's an american baby that that's an all around American. That's about to be me over the next over the next six months. It's I go into hibernation on Sundays and and that's that's what it means to be to be an
1: American. And so it's I'm, also and it's David Goggins though, who's it, out running yes. an ultra marathon on Sunday. So no, 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 no.
0: It, it's my I'm right. I'm right. You know that,
1: Yeah, I mean that's the my so, tribe
0: so I, my, my tribe and perception of the world is right. Sorry, keep going. You were gonna say something. Yeah.
1: No, so where do we where do we find like the, you know, you want a Sunday and David Goggins, where do we align? What do we agree on? And what does he learn when he's out, um, you know, running? And what do you learn while you're, while you're watching TV? Like, you're learning more about American culture. I think you're right. I think that you're spot on about, like, if you don't understand what it's like to be just, like, lazy, eating, you know, with Cheeto dust on your jersey, getting really into the game, and checking your fantasy, you know, you know stats nonstop, then you don't understand a big part of America. And you need to understand that. And you need to understand the go-getter who's working a triple shift on Sunday so that they can buy, you know, a nice new car, and would be upset about, you know, getting taxed extra because they were busy working when they, and they're missing their football team playing. Like you have to really recognize all of that that diversity.
0: You ju- you just pulled the biggest high school teacher move, Will, which is that you took my dumb joke and turned it into a lesson. All I was doing I, was just making a joke about the aspirations of football. And and you had to turn into a real lesson. No, I take I, it
1: all I, seriously. I take all those jokes that my
0: students say that's seriously. That's important. That's important. They may, troll you, me. Yeah. Well, some some somehow somehow you took David Goggins and Cheeto dust and outlandfall jerseys and then turned it into a lesson about polarization, and tribalism. I got I got last last two questions. One is a question that we ask everybody. I'm curious about your take. But before that, um, uh, why did you start to be a teacher? Like, what what about teaching dreams?
1: Um, I wasn't sure. I wanted to get into a service job. It was kind of pushed on me uh, from a very early age that, like, where did you grow up again? Um, Bethlehem, right by like, oh, yeah. Lehigh Bethlehem. University, right. like yep. Eastern yes. PA. Um, it was kind of pushed on me very early to, like, get into a service job. Like, that's like a good thing to do, being be in a service. So I didn't know what that was. Um, I didn't have a lot of interest. Like, I was. I was a blob. I watched a lot of Saved by the Bell and Full House and Family Matters. And like, that's it. I didn't play any sports. I was a real, I was kind of a mess. And I, and I didn't know what I was good at or anything. So I was like, I'll get into a service job. I had to pick something. So I was going to college. So I picked criminal justice. I was going to be a cop. All right, I can be a cop. And the first day of class, the guy who was teaching it was a former officer. And he just had like, he was like, the. it was a really bad representative for police officers who a lot of people think the stereotype of police officers. He was just like, this is a position of power and you can wield that power and you can ruin a single mom's life if you want to, if she's breaking the speed limit, you can, I was like, uh oh, oh. And I basically walked out of the class, never went back, went to one class. So then I changed my major. I was like, all right, so what do I, I'm trying to help people. seems like pretty basic. Um, how do I do that? So I can get help people, you know, who are being attacked or something like that or criminals, or I can get to them before they're criminals. It was something really simple. I don't have a great explanation for how i got into teaching but then as soon as i started going down it, what i realized was like wow my teachers were terrible like and i hated school i when i say like i'm not that bright like i think i could have been but i just didn't connect it i looked at school teachers and i was like you're gonna give me life advice that's essentially what you're doing day after day you're telling me i should learn this and i say why and they say well because then you'll be smarter you'll be successful and it's like like you like, I don't want your life. you are not appealing. Everything about you is not appealing to me. School teachers are dorks. Like I can do it better. I was like, I can do it better than you. And I really believe that. Like the average school teacher out there, I can do better than you for whatever reason. And I think that's when I really started to like pick it up and like get into it is like, the bar is so low for American education. I think there's a lot of teachers that mean well, they're soft-hearted, they're good people. But as far as like really bringing out the brilliance in, in um, young people, and getting them to find success by their definitions of success, I think the bar is really low. I mean, of course, who wants to get into teaching? It's a it's a tough job. You know, you have teenagers just making fun of you nonstop. And it doesn't pay well and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think I just realized that I could just do it better. And and that that was a big, that was, and then when, when you're good at something, you lean into doing it more. So I, when I realized I was good at it, which I realized like first thing within student teaching, I was like, oh, I'm good at this. Then I just, you want to do it more, anything that you're good at. So I just kind of stayed with it because I, I liked it and I was good at it.
0: Man, I I, I have such deep respect for, for teachers and the way you're approaching this work. I mean, I think that teaching, it, it's weird that teaching is this job that, you know, is seen as something where mid people go to. I think our smartest people should be teachers. Like some of the some of the friends that I had that are now kindergarten teachers. Like I would never trust my kids around them. Like I I, I want people like you teaching, not not like you know my friend Joey. That's <laughs> you know like you do not want Joey near your kids.
1: <laughs> and yet, why is Joey teaching kindergarten? How many male kindergarten teachers are there? Not many.
0: Not many, not many, but it's, oh. it's teaching is like a, it, it needs to be prioritized. You know, in Finland, I think it's Finland. It's one of the, the Norwegian countries, uh, uh, or not, uh, not Norwegian one, country. one of the Scandinavian countries that, um, they teachers are the highest paying profession in society there. And so I think it might be Finland where teachers get paid the most. And the idea is that society is prioritizing that specific prof- profession and, and I have like so many different questions for you about school choice. And I'm curious about, actually, one last question I got to get answered. And then we'll go to the, 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 the last one that I always ask, which is, is there a certain part of your curriculum that you feel most trepidation around teaching? Is there a certain part of the curriculum that given this highly politicized environment where you're like, huh, that one's tough,
1: tough um, around that one? No, <laughs> do you do. Know what's interesting is I would rather tackle the abortion issue than I would the textbook of how elections happen, because one of them is at least honest, like it's honest about like the abortion issue and how complex it is. You know, I think it's focusing on. They're looking different places. The pro-life is focused on the on the the fetus or the baby. The pro-choice is focused on the woman. And you're saying like, you're taking away this person's life. You're taking away this person's freedom. America, freedom versus life. Those are equal as far as importance. And I think that's why it's a good issue. And I love talking about that. But if you're going like, how do um, people become president? Well, they vet this, then they do this, then they run this way, then they do this, then they do the. It's like, well, or they just, you know, cuddle up to a couple of corporations. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how do laws get passed? That is hard for me to talk, teach about yeah. how laws get passed. Because it's like, well, you you call up your, your congressman, you tell them, blah, 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 blah. They write it up. And then they it's like, no, that's not how it happens. Yeah. And it's then not Raytheon, happens calls at
0: all. Raytheon calls them right after yeah. you call them and they're like, here's
1: $100,000. Yes. Like that's actually, you know, the regulatory capture element of how people bounce from being a lobbyist to in Congress, to being CEO, how our Secretary of Defense used to be on the board of Raytheon. Now he decides if we send missiles. Like, I always go back to that because that's the hard thing for me to, right? I do have trepidation about like, let me teach the textbook. And kids are like, how does the the law gets passed? How does the bill become a law? You know, schoolhouse rock style. I'm just like, oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take culture war issues all day over that.
0: That's fascinating. That's such a fascinating take. Mm-hmm. That, that takes some steel, though. That takes some steel. Um, Okay. The reason why this show is called The Whole Majority is because I think a big part of, of the world, again, right now in American society is craving the type of conversation we just had. People might not agree with everything we said, but I think people agree with how we think about things. And I go back and forth. And I learn a lot through these conversations. And honestly, they're also just a good time to shitpost. So- with that context in mind, like part of the reason why I think you can find hope in, in this modern world is having purpose and like having a really good answer to the question, why? I asked you about why teaching. This is a question I ask everybody from like celebrities to politicians to, to amazing leaders like you who are making a difference in your community. Like what is ultimately your why? And it can be anything. It can be kids, it can be your wife, it can be
1: a dream. What is your why? Um, yeah, that's a- broad question um i think at search for truth i i think that um searching for truth wisdom you know i mean i'm kind of new to like faith and i, I like proverbs and talks about a lot about like wisdom and i think at the end of the day we're all very lost we are all should be humble about like what we know and what we don't um in the spiritual realm the the metaphysical realm the physical realm uh so i think searching for truth is a really really um, interesting pursuit. I think it's a noble cause. I think that, as inconvenient as it might be, shout out to Al Gore. Like, truth is going to be the 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 best way to try and build a better world. It's just trying to understand what is going on, and I, that's that's the biggest why that I have. Is like I'm trying to get to the right answers. I'm trying to understand this reality that we're in. I'm very interested. I went to the psychedelic science co- conference, and I don't promote psychedelic. Drug use, but I do promote psychedelic drug research because it seems like there's a lot there about understanding reality and stuff. So there's a lot to it, a lot of layers to to reality. I think searching for truth is a is a really noble cause for me, and I think it's a good place to set it up for my, for my own children and everything is to have a better understanding of the world. If we better understand it, then we can we can um, make the most out of it in, in the way that you see, you know, the most moral way. I
0: well, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for thanks for being on. I, I would say that this is probably one of the most fun conversations I've had, one of the most engaging conversations. I know that you and I could go back and forth. And as the hopeful majority grows, I'd love to have you back on. Um, but thank you for being on and thank you for the work that you're doing. And I hope the folks enjoyed the back and forth.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. No, education isn't just in a classroom. Most of my teachers were not my teachers you know I said I didn't really like my teachers so what what you what you're doing with this is an educational platform and you know I'm very curious as you get you know these, these leaders on to ask about the education system because I have a lot of thoughts on that too and I'm, I'm always an open book about how we can get the education system better you're mentioning Finland and, and everything like if we can fix education obviously I'm biased but if we can fix education I think we can fix a lot of problems that we all agree on. So it's been really nice to, to have you. And I appreciate you bringing on a school teacher to talk about this stuff. Cause I think it's obviously, I think it's important. And the more people that, that hear about what I'm doing, then the more pushback I get, which is good. Cause it'll get me closer to the truth too. So
0: next episode, we'll have you on to talk about the actual education system. I think that'll be a fascinating conversation. And in fact, we have a lot of folks that are in the audience and people that have come on the show before that, are pretty influential in that arena so I think that conversation back and forth would be good before we quickly run what's your podcast called and and where can people oh, find you
1: the cylinder radio cylinder radio and the idea is that it's um it's like a three-dimensional, like from one standpoint like, or from one viewpoint, it's a circle. Uh, there we go. Uh, no, there we go. And then from one standpoint, it's a uh, – from another viewpoint, it's a, it's a rectangle. So you have people arguing, like I mentioned, the abortion issue. So what I do is I bring on people from various viewpoints to discuss. And I bring them on individually, so I focus on just their point, point of view. But then I, I bring it on just so we understand that these issues are complex. It's called Cylinder Radio. And on Instagram, it's just my name, Will, Reusch there's the dork
0: the dork has finally come out he's he's revealed the cylinder radio and and for anybody that's listening we just had a demonstration of will's water bottle and how it it demonstrates the shift in perspective so thank you sir
1: appreciate you cool thanks appreciate it
0: And that's another conversation in the books. Wilbur, thank you for your time. Man, we went everywhere from if Donald Trump was your student, what would you teach him? If Joe Biden was your student, what would you want him to take away to those GOP debates just happened? Where do we stand? What's missing in our educational system? If you enjoy that conversation, remember, leave a like. If you're on YouTube, rate the episode if you're on Spotify Apple. It helps a lot because we've got a hopeful majority to build it and we need all of us to build it because remember nuance is under attack because people like us stay quiet and it's time for us to get loud about the need to have nuanced productive open-minded conversation remember the divide in our politics is not left right but it's between temperament mindset whether we want to be open-minded or closed-minded so every week mondays youtube spotify apple where you get your content i'll see you in episode 14 next week